I think the chance of winning the lottery and take the NPV of it, do whatever you want with it and compare it to like low, like bottom quartile venture. And it's not as good. Somebody make a chart of that. I'm going to, that's a really good blog post I should do. But like, if you took scratch off tickets and you took the bottom quartile of venture capital, better off putting it in venture capital. So maybe they should have scratch off tickets and you scratch it off and you get a certain amount to put into a venture. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it yeah. And hilarious. Which one? That'd be fantastic. I'm in. <laughs> scratch it off. You got, oh, I got three sequoias. <laughs> I need one more sequoia to get in there. This Week in Startups is brought to you by LinkedIn Ads. To redeem a $100 LinkedIn ad credit and launch your first campaign, go to linkedin.com slash angelpod. Squarespace, turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code TWIST to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And Lemon.io. Need to speed up your product development without draining your budget? Hire vetted engineers from Europe at Lemon.io. Go to Lemon.io slash TWIST to get 15% off for the first four weeks. All right, everybody, welcome back. This is the final season of what we've been calling Angel here at This Week in Startups. You know, when I came up with the book Angel... We would interview angel investors and seed investors. But then as my career grew and I started to have funds and we're on our fourth fund now, we thought, hey, maybe we'll, you know, retire the angel brand since I'm more of a fund manager now, which is typical in venture capital. People start as angels, they build a track record, they then build funds. And so we thought here for the final season of Angel, we would focus on interviewing LPs. What's an LP? I'll remind you again, that's a limited partner. LPs are the people who give money to a VC firm. At the VC firm, you might have a general partner. So in the industry, you're going to hear this over and over again, LPs, GPs, GPs, LPs, LPs give the money, they represent pools of capital, you probably know some of these pools of capital, it could be a retirement fund, it could be an endowment like Harvard's or Yale's you've heard of, it could be a sovereign wealth fund you've heard of, like in Qatar or UAE, or the Saudi, uh, uh, Saudis fund, which is called PIF. You have all these different funds uh, around the world that have LPs who give money to GPs. And that's just a shorthand for our industry. And today we have Jordan Stein. He's from Crescent Partners. This is one of the big players in venture capital. Uh, they're what's called a multifamily office. That means they manage the investments for uh, a category which you re may remember from the WeWork series, ultra high net worth individuals, um, UHNWIs. And these family offices, they need help. And they're typically trying to preserve capital and also grow it, you know, so they, they have multiple mandates. Um, and they will help a family. Typically, those families come from, you know, some matriarch patriarch that built Walmart or, you know, some great company. And, and now they're two or three generations later, and they're trying to keep uh, that wealth uh, in play, sometimes to fund nonprofit operations, sometimes to fund businesses and make investments, do all kinds of interesting things in the world. So they'll make investments across real estate, private credit, private equity, and of course, everybody, the darling uh, of all of private investing is venture capital. We'll get into why that is. Jordan's a director at Crescent Venture, venture Capital. Jordan is the director of Crescent's Venture Capital Investment Practice. So welcome to the program, Jordan. Thank you, Jason. It's uh, great to be here. Yeah. So you heard my sort of ramble there. I'm trying to educate founders, uh, you know, listening to the pod here and, you know, catch up people who are angel investors and make sure they understand it. You have a very large pool of capital. Uh, from what I understand, it's 40 or $50 billion, roughly. 
and some percentage of that the families that you represent want to put in venture capital. Just to educate the audience, why do they want to put money into venture capital? Yeah. So from our perspective, the thesis around venture capital was, was pretty simple. You know, if you look historically last 10, 15, 20, 30 years, venture capital has driven a significant amount of returns for big single family offices, for institutions like the ones you mentioned. Uh, it's a very powerful place to invest in terms of the category. It can also be really, really difficult to access, right? And so if you're not investing with the best venture managers, our view is it's probably not worth doing. And it's created a bit of a sort of barrier for a lot of family offices, a lot of high net worth and all tri net worth individuals in terms of their ability to access. And so what we've tried to do is put together a portfolio of these top quartile, top decile managers uh, who are looking for GPs that are you know big and reliable and consistent and hopefully answer the phone uh, so that we could provide exposure to these families, to our clients, uh, as well as other external investors that we have to that type of portfolio. And so it's enabled that to be part of, as you mentioned, a broader diversified asset allocation strategy, which is what we really believe in at Cresset. So when you look at VCs, you mentioned something very subtle there in your answer, which is GPs, if they answer the phone. This is like, let's be candid here. The people who run venture capital firms are quixotic, unique people in all the world. And they don't answer to anybody, typically. If they did answer to somebody, it would be a limited partner. But the truth is, the funds tend to be small, and the pools of capital tend to be large. So if the venture capital industry could maintain their returns, and be 10 times bigger, there would be enough capital that would rush over to it. But the fact is, we all know, there's a certain amount of uh, startups created every year, it's a finite number. And there's a certain number that break out and get product market fit. So there are some constraints here. What's it like when you build a practice like this, and you've been crested, it's only been around since 2017. So you're a startup yourselves. What's it like getting those folks to pick up the phone, and then I guess you got to fight to make your case, hey, we'd like an allocation in a top tier fund. And you know, some of the top funds, I think you're in Founders Fund, A16Z, Cowboy Ventures, Alien, which was just on the program, Lightspeed, etc. So let's talk candidly about that weirdness that exists in in venture capital It's very weird, boutique, yet large industry. Yes, um, it being capital constrained is, is kind of key to, you know, GPs having their pick of the litter when it comes to deciding which LPs they want. These top funds that we're talking to, almost without exception, are all oversubscribed. And you know they then get to pick which LP they want to join them. Not all money is green. And so for us, you know, the, the founding story of Crescent here, as you mentioned, we're, we're kind of a startup. We were founded in 2017. And our two main co-founders were ex-private equity guys who were retired and spent a year looking to uh, become a client of a multifamily office or wealth management firm and didn't really find anything that they liked. And one of the big disconnects that they noticed was if you look at the most successful multi-generationally wealthy family, that group you're talking about, that's you know second generation, third generation, go to seventh generation, um, they're allocating a significant portion of capital to private markets. And most single family offices that are you know subscale uh, and most wealth management firms and multifamily offices aren't resourced to do this well. They don't have the talent, they don't have the resources. And so they end up woefully short of, you know, in some cases, could be 30, 40, 50, 60% allocations to privates. And you see this at Harvard and Stanford and Yale and all of those institutions, they're able to actually make those types of allocations. 
So from day one, we really created two sides to Crescent. We have Crescent Asset Management, which is our wealth advisory group. And we've got you know about 130 advisors at this point, work with a few thousand clients who, as you mentioned, are uh, ultra high net worth as well as high net worth individuals. And the other side, which is where I sit, Crescent Partners, and we are basically the group that is tasked with sourcing, underwriting, and providing institutional quality private investment opportunities. And what's been interesting is we started thinking about, okay, we're going to do this for our clients. It's going to be very connected. And over time, we ended up getting a lot of interest externally from other family offices, other investors who were like, wait a second, I'm not getting into any of these opportunities. Can I invest with you? And it's been about 65% clients and 35% external. So with venture specifically, it was the second to last strategy that we've added within Crescent Partners. You know, holistically, we want to be able to execute across all different asset uh, allocations and asset classes. And so we've got, you know, in real estate, a qualified opportunity zone, series of funds, some other real estate focused strategies. We've got direct private equity strategies, fund strategies, secondaries, co-investments. We've got a big evergreen private credit fund. Um, and venture, we waited to launch until a couple of years ago, which is when we launched our first venture fund. And we waited because we couldn't get into these funds prior to that point. We were not interesting to them. And in 2021, we effectively crossed like the $20 billion AUM mark. Our growth story was was kind of crazy at that point. You know, we had kind of gone from like three billion AUM in the first year to six to twelve to twenty five, and as you mentioned, we're now north of forty today. Um, but that was the time when we felt like, okay, now we're interesting to some GPs, and it also helped that you know some of how we've grown. It's been mostly organic, but some through acquisition and and and, and merging with other firms. One of those groups, a firm called True Capital Management, uh, their VC. Practice had been led by uh, now my partner, guy who's fantastic, his name is James Danforth. Uh, they managed uh, money for athletes and celebrities. And venture capital firms really like athletes and celebrities, as you probably know. And so they had gotten pretty tremendous access and had built a great roster of relationships, but they just weren't quite big enough. And so when we launched our strategy back in 2021, I basically sat down. Uh, we have a bunch of what, what we call sort of centers of influence within our firms, people who are just really well networked and reached out to that group along with True to figure out, okay, who can we get in front of and actually talk to? How do we crack open the door so we can tell our story and see if we're a fit? And when we tested the waters, we pretty quickly got access to Andreessen Horowitz Founders Fund and, and um, actually uh, FPV were our first three investments run by West Chan. Uh, who you may know is fantastic first time fund just spun out of Felices. Um, and then Lightspeed shortly thereafter and Cowboy shortly thereafter. And we're like, okay, wait, we can do this. Uh, and it kind of snowballs from there and you get behind the doors, if you will. And now you're able to access the ecosystem uh, in, in a pretty significant way. And so it was difficult and we couldn't do it until we had kind of reached that scale and reached that threshold in terms of our ecosystem and our relationships. And then since then, now it's, you know, we have this fantastic set of relationships uh, and feel really to be a part of that community. All right, listen, B2B marketing is hard. We all know that. Why is it hard? Because buying cycles can be long and B2B decision makers are hard to find and they're really hard to target. So here's the best solution for B2B marketers, you know, LinkedIn ads. Everybody knows LinkedIn because it has over a billion members. We're all there every day, hanging out, looking for a new executive, sharing our wins and just generally staying informed. 
But did you know out of those billion users, 18%, 180 million are senior level executives, and there are 10 million C-level executives. Those are the CEOs, CTOs, CFOs, COOs, chief strategy officers, you know these folks. If you want to close big deals, you got to get in front of decision makers, and these are the decision makers you need to target. And according to LinkedIn's data, when B2B tech companies use LinkedIn ads, they generate two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social media platforms. LinkedIn ads is a no-brainer for B2B companies. You'll build relationships with these decision makers. You'll drive results for your business. And you'll do all of this on a platform that respects the world you operate in. So here's a call to action. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash angelpod to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash angelpod for a $100 credit. Terms and conditions do apply. And you're also your timing, uh, in some ways was fantastic. Because when the market uh, came apart in 2022, we had this crazy recession, depression, really, if you if you're in our industry, it was a depression, just in terms of the valuations uh, coming down for software companies, 2023, a year of reckoning and cleaning things up here we are in 2024, you came into the market when hey, maybe some LPs were lowering their commitments, lowering the number of names, and so that does open up, uh, you know, some some slots on the dance cards, uh, I would assume. And, and people maybe would be willing to take a little bit more capital, etc. Well, I would say I would say yes and no, I will say that even then, you know, all those firms I mentioned, and you know, uh, we're in, you know, we're in craft, we're, we're in a whole bunch of, of these other groups, every single one of them was still oversubscribed, uh, to the point where, you know, we didn't always get the allocation we wanted being a new first time LP, truthfully, sometimes it was a little bit lower. Um, and we thought there would be more of a hole to fill. And honestly, we found there really wasn't as big a hole as we expected. So what does that say about venture capital here in the United States? We, we had this crazy bust, you know, after a huge run up, the ZERP environment. Obviously, the press is having a field day with all of this. But from your perspective, you know, you're coming in and talking to the top names in venture. And it seems like things are still cranking. So maybe what does that say about... I don't know, the resiliency or how venture capital is viewed by people making thoughtful decisions with large pools of capital. I think within venture, there's there's a difference between, you know, the groups that we're talking about and kind of your average venture firm, right? And so mm. I think new, uh, new venture firms, uh, people who are not as branded, as uh, well networked, as accomplished as a founder themselves, people like that, have struggled mightily to fundraise. And I know plenty mm. of very good firms, frankly, that just aren't able to get the capital. I think at this upper echelon, you have a fear from LPs that if I don't reallocate in some way, shape or form, I may not be able to reallocate the next time. And oh, wow, I don't yeah. want to change my whole strategy and get worried about being crowded out. Um, I'm going to have to sort of lean in here. And so instead of cutting my allocations to you know, the founders funds and the, the FPVs and the cowboys and uh, crafts in the world, right? They're like, I'm still going to re up to those, but I'm investing less yeah. in the category. So I'm going to cut out new managers, and I'm going to cut out some of the, you know, maybe fluff underneath. Yeah, that tracks. I mean, if you if you think about it, there was a firm that left Sequoia at one point, because they had expanded, I think with their China strategy, people can look it up. It was a lot of news in the venture community. And then there was one firm. Um, and that was also news that left benchmark you know, during I think the Great Recession, maybe or dot com, I can't remember which one it was, but I think Great Recession. And those people then if you're a GP, and you think about it, somebody doesn't believe in you, you know, when the market 
uh, has a rough patch, but you've made money for them before. And you're theoretically, uh, if you if you work hard, going to make money for them in the future. And they're not loyal to you in that down market. Yeah, why would you bring them back to, you know, selectively cherry pick funds or something like that? You're looking for some consistency. Right. Um, there were a lot of venture tourists, uh, yes. a lot of uh, hedge funds and people kind of coming down into dipping into the category. Maybe they ran up uh, the valuations of these companies in an unsustainable way. And then you maybe had some venture tourists starting their micro funds, 10 to $100 million funds, or it would have been a seed fund, I, I think, in the past. So what's the state of sort of venture tourism now? Uh, and, you know, how do you look at the portfolios you're in? And you might have caught the tail end of some of these overpriced rounds and then markdowns. And, and how are you managing that with your clients and the GPs? Because you sit between a bunch of high net worth individuals who, you yeah. know, hey, I'm just picking a name out here. Maybe they were investors in Stripe or Instacart, sure. you know, two names that have reset their valuations. And Instacart's was pretty, pretty brutal. Uh, and I think Stripes was maybe 50% uh, at some point. And, and I think Instacart maybe was 30 or 40 billion, depending on 20, 30, 40 billion when you got in and then publicly trading at 7 billion. It, this is pretty disheartening, I guess. So how do you manage that? Or does it not come up with the, you know, your, your customers, as it were, the families you're managing money for, when they see these incredible investments that they thought were going to the moon, and they get a massive haircut? Yeah, no, it absolutely comes up. And I think uh, I always, you know, go back to the Warren Buffett quote, when, uh, when others are fearful, be greedy, and when others are greedy, be fearful. And I think that very well encapsulates uh, sort of risk off environments. Like, you know, you mentioned earlier, we got very lucky in terms of our launch timing. Uh, we made our first commitment in early 2022. And things were still hot in early 2022, in terms of like overpriced rounds. Uh, but and our fund is closed now, uh, we're going to launch our, our next strategy here shortly. But we're 30% deployed thereabout, right? And so most of that was over the last 12 months, as opposed to very little happening, frankly, in, in 2022. And so we, we, we got very lucky if we had if we had crossed that threshold, and we're, we're not believers in necessarily trying to time the market, right? Our idea is, hey, Mr. Mrs. Client, you should have a consistent allocation to venture just in the same way you'd have a consistent allocation to private credit or private equity or whatever. And you may rebalance here and there over the years. But the point is, you're going to have up cycles, you're going to have down cycles, and you kind of want to be consistent throughout because timing the market's really hard. But we did get lucky. And I think it is resonating with our investors, certainly now, uh, who always start with the question of, well, you know, how much 2021 exposure do I have? Like, what are we talking about here in terms of these haircuts? And we're fortunate enough to be able to say none. Uh, effectively, everything is net new 2022. And even though 2022 is still probably a little bit high, that's 5 10% of, of your broader yeah. portfolio. It's not 10x. <laughs> no. Uh, and PitchBook has done some work recently on this looking at, you know, sort of a pendulum of investor friendly versus founder friendly environments. And 2021 into 2022 was the most founder friendly environment of the last decade. And that means Valuations were stupid high, uh, diligence was stupid fast, and terms were really, really friendly to founders. That has fully shifted back the other way, according to their research, such that now the opposite of true and is true. And we are seeing the most investor-friendly environment we've seen over the last decade. And I think that's intuitively um, something that our clients and a lot of investors do understand when presented with that information in the data. It's like, okay, yeah, this makes sense. There's been a reset. And then I think coupling that with what we're seeing in AI, 
you know, which we can talk about. And I think we'll have a lot of winners and losers kind of like an internet or mobile or uh, whatever trend or super cycle you want to go back to uh, is creating a significant opportunities again for these top echelon fund managers. Listen, we all know your website. It's like your digital handshake. It's the first impression, your storefront, your best salesperson, the greatest ad you ever made. It is the introduction. And you want that introduction to be memorable, or you might lose potential customers. They say it all the time, right? People judge a book by its cover. The cover of your book, your bestseller is your Squarespace website. That's right. If you have a gorgeous Squarespace website, the design is going to be so stunning. It's going to leave such a great impression that people are going to want to know more and they're going to think highly of your brand. Imagine with that beautiful Squarespace website, you also have the ability to connect and grow your audience like never before. You can sell anything you want from products to services with ease. We're talking about these jaw-dropping templates that look fantastic on any device and they have super intuitive drag and drop design features. Plus, advanced analytics like marketing and traffic insights. You get your sales data, engagement trends, and so much more. Squarespace gives you everything you need to run your business online, whether you're dreaming of launching an online store, your own blog, or setting up a members-only subscription service. Well, Squarespace makes it all possible. So are you ready to upgrade your online look and turn your ordinary into the exceptional? I know you are. So check out squarespace.com slash twist to get a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, you got to go to squarespace.com slash twist to get 10% off your first website or domain purchase. It is the greatest. I love Squarespace. I use it all the time. And you have a co-invest program. Um, maybe you could explain to the audience what that is and why sure. it exists. Because if you're betting on managers to do all this work, and then managers understand what the winners are because they work with them on a consistent basis, and they have more money to deploy, to deploy then you know, I've, I've always wondered, well, why, why, why not stick with that? Why try to do the job of the GPs, you know, that you are working with? So maybe you could give your best explanation for that. Because uh, I, I hear different, you know, people could steal me on it and, you know, argue each side. So argue, argue sure. the side, I guess, of having a, a co-invest program. Yeah. And I think it's been an interesting trend to watch where most strategies that are, you know, say, primarily a fund of funds type strategy are doing this in some way, shape or form. For us, our co-investment program right now is a part of our overall fund strategy. So 10 to 20% of our fund will be for co-investment opportunities. Uh, what does that accomplish for us? Well, it has the benefit of a few things. Number one, it usually blends down fees a little bit, right? And so mm -hmm. if a manager charges, say, 2 and 20 or a little bit higher, depending on the manager uh, at the baseline for their fund, it might be 0 and 10 or 1 and 10 or 0 and 20. There's any range of outcomes there. So it does help blend down fees a little bit and it creates faster DPI. I think mm -hmm. one of the most difficult elements of venture is it does take a long time. And, and frankly, it's gotten longer in terms of that time frame, uh, yep. the way companies are staying private uh, for a longer period of time. And it's double-edged sword. Because they're private for longer, you want to access them in private markets where more creation, more value creation happens but it can take a little bit longer to, to ultimately end up with an exit. And so if you include a bit of co-invest into your portfolio construction, then you'll be able to hopefully generate some faster DPI uh, for our investors. So that's, that's a big part of it. I think the second element is, you know, we, when we're talking to fund managers, and this should be true across asset classes, you ask the question, like, what's your right to exist? Why mm. should I give you my money? With every investment I make, there's an opportunity cost where I'm not investing in, in someone else. We look inwards and ask ourselves the same question. You know, why should 
people trust us in the venture categories because we've got pretty unique access and what I think is a fantastic portfolio. Why should they trust us in the co-invest category? I'm not going to pretend that we are as good as many of our, our, uh, I'd say probably any of our uh, GPs that we've invested in. Hopefully not. That would hopefully not. uh, That would be like a misalignment. If you suddenly became better than the GPs, it'd be like the Hmm. manager of the restaurant being better at cooking the steak. Yeah. Not not the way it should work. Yeah. No, no chance. But, uh, but what I'll say is, you know, we also get the benefit of that ecosystem. So I'll give you an example without mentioning names specifically, but, you know, we looked at a co-investment opportunity uh, in a really interesting business just a couple months ago. And within five days, we had talked to uh, five of our fund managers and a few others about the opportunity, many of which who had seen it, many of which had looked at it at an earlier stage. And so we can actually kind of extend beyond the talents of our team and benefit mm. from the broader ecosystem that we're now a part of in terms yeah. of really selecting the best co-investments. And that's important because there is adverse selection within the co-investment world. If you are a GP, you're not always going to want to give away your best deal. You want to back up the truck. And to the extent that there's any additional room, then sure. And so part of the magic of the co-invest is we don't really want the stuff that GPs aren't fully leaning into. We want the things that, okay, they are fully leaned into, but this is the allocation they got, or you know, there's more, no more room left in the fund or concentration limits or whatever. And having that benefit of being able to discuss that with the ecosystem really helps us hone in on that. Yeah, and, and this is the great paradox of what we do for a living. We deal in, you know, an asymmetric information environment where people are making trades on insider information, not illegal in public markets. In private markets, that's the entirety of what we do is, you know, private companies do not give their information to the public. They're not out there and, and it's hard to, to get that information. So if you have five fund managers, three of them own the shares in this company, they did this, the seed round, the series A, the series C, and you're trying to do the series D, man, what an advantage is that is. And you have the two people who passed on the D or this current round, and they tell you you're thinking pretty, pretty amazing. But you know, there's also something there, it could be adverse selection. But I think you have to double click on it, don't you? Because it could be, well, if I was the seed investor, and I own 10% of the company, and I'm up 200x, 400x, do I really want to add on to that position? There might be a case for it. There might be a case for that seed manager to deploy that company in what they think is the next Uber, Robinhood, yeah. Coinbase, DoorDash, whatever it is, right? So you, it does take absolutely double click. And you get into you know reserve math too, where there's a lot of seed and series A who, you know, firms or pre-seed firms, uh, all of these groups who have some sort of capital reserve to follow on investments, right? And that also may be an area where, hey, we'll invest in seed primarily and then we'll do follow-ons in A. But we're not doing anything after the A. It's just not consistent with our strategy. Our opportunity cost, if we do Bs and Cs, is that we can't put it back into finding the next Uber uh, or the next DoorDash or whatever it, whatever it is. And so that's absolutely a factor. It's not always adverse selection. There can be a number of things. But to your point, yeah, you really got to drill down and understand it. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've been having this conversation a lot as a pre-seed and seed investor with our fund because people are... The question I'm getting from a lot of LPs is, when do you start liquidating? And you know, my answer to them is, when we have the opportunity, and we're up 50, 100, 200 x, we're going to take 10% off the table, even if we think it's still a rocket ship. Because my experience with Robinhood with Uber, you know, a, a company worth 14 billion, 150 billion is, you know, if you can take off 10% in year six, 
in year nine, in year 12, and get that money into the pockets and get that DPI locked in, you know, that, that the cash on cash that a lot of investors are looking at. And, you know, how much did I, I invest in this firm? And then how much did they actually give me back in cash? We're really, you know, cognizant of that. It's one of the wonderful th- things. I mean, just, you know, during this holiday week, a lot of people are off. Um, I've been giving some thought to this. My Lord, it's incredible how functional our ecosystem is. The seed investors are making these crazy bets, pairing their positions. But then there are these later stage investors who want those shares. And then there's a public market after that. And then there's co-invest. And, you know, in some ways, it's, it's so vibrant. And the transactions are happening at different stages with different um, goals. I, I'm not saying it perfectly. But, you know, now that I've been doing it and going into my second decade, you start to see the chessboard a little bit more. And it's beautiful. It's just a beautiful symphony of risk-taking, you know, like unbelievable, insane risk-taking, which is what I love about it. The fact that we can tell people with a straight face, we're going to invest in 100 companies, two of them, based on the power law, are going to be 95% of the returns. And they're like, which two? And I'm like, I mean, I could tell you what I think, but if if I'm being candid, historically, when I look back on my track record, you, you know, the idea that a taxi cab company and a stock trading company where you don't pay to trade stocks and a meditation app com would be three of our biggest returns. I would be like kind of lying, you know, we thought they were really great teams. Don't get me wrong. We, 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 it was clear they were going to be winners, but it wasn't clear the extent of the win. And how do you think about the power law? Cause you're investing in so many different funds. You're, you're actually in some ways trying to capture, you know, the average maybe, and then some, uh, you know, because you're managing entire portfolios. How do you think about that and risk, generally yeah. speaking? We, you know, the power law definitely exists. I, I think there's no doubt about it, and it's hard to find evidence to the contrary. And I echo what you have, what you have found within your own portfolio. Like I've yet to meet very many managers who, at a pre-seed seed stage, can predict with significant accuracy the winners. It's very, very difficult to do. And so the way we think about it is in the context of a complete portfolio, right? And so we have kind of a barbell, if you will, where, you know, funds like Andreessen Horowitz or Founders Fund or or Lightspeed, uh, they're a little bit bigger. And so they're not going to benefit quite as much from the power law. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think they're going to generate fantastic returns for us. And I think they're absolutely brilliant. Do they have a shot at the, you know, 50x? I think that's a lot harder. The math is a lot harder to get there. Uh, to take but, a billion dollar fund to 50 billion is really just it's not going to happen, folks, you, no. you, you, you're investing at m- much later stage companies when, you yeah. know, it's pretty clear they're a winner, you know, to a certain extent. Yeah. And even if you're really leaning in, I mean, if you've got a billion dollar fund to, to 50 exit to take that extreme example, generating 50 billion, you know, if you own, say, 10%. At exit, you're creating $500 billion of enterprise value. That is like really, really difficult to do uh, in terms of IPOs. And so, yeah, it's just not going to happen. Just to explain that to folks, to go from one to 50 billion is not the total value of the companies you invested in. In the best case scenario, as you're correctly pointing out here, you might own 10% on average of the companies. So that 50 billion, if you were theoretically able to it would be 10x in market capitalization 500 billion in market capitalization it's it, that would be like hitting apple tesla uber and google like it's just you know it, it has happened at the seed stage you know instagram which was actually kind of a smaller 
you know, outcome at a billion, but Instagram and Uber and Twitter, which was the larger one, were all in Chris Saka's $8 million fund. And, you know, you do get those 200x funds from time to time, 100x fund, but they generally happen at seed is what you're saying. Yes. Uh, And and, and the counter, I guess, is unless you can generate a ridiculous amount of concentration and ownership, and I've only seen a few do that really well. I will tell you, you know, Oren Zev is a solo GP on the West Coast that I have like the most respect for. Uh, we're an LP in, in his fund, and he has the most incredible returns. And he is not necessarily invested in you know hundreds of companies, um, but when he does, he has super high conviction and doubles down and triples down, and that has worked really, really well. And you start to get into those upper echelon numbers. Um, so he's able to Oren watch the seed investments he makes. And then determine they're uh, a definitive or likely winner in some way and get that second and third bet in the series A and the series B. Right, right. And, yeah. uh, and, and but it's really, you know, there aren't that many out there who do it well. And I, I frankly I'm haven't seen anyone have d- done it as well as yeah, Founders Fund's yeah. actually very, very good at this too. Um, yeah. But, but I, Oren we is, just had is, Brian Singerman on for the same series. Yeah. And he was talking about, I don't know if you saw the episode, but he was talking about uh, Airbnb, SpaceX, Andrew. I don't know if Andrew was in that short list yet. I think that's his future list. He believes that will become one. I, I think that's pretty good logic yeah. there. But I think it was, Pal- no, it was Palantir, Airbnb, and SpaceX, where they yeah. backed up the Brinks truck, 15% of the fund, 20% of the fund into one of those names, which is bold. Yeah, but it, when yeah. it works, it works really, really well. And I think the folks at Founders Fund are, are some of the smartest out there. I mean, they've really built an incredible program. Uh, and there is something to, you know, again, there's not many, but they, they definitely have a little bit more predictive ability, I think, than others. Um, so that is kind of one side of the portfolio. Mm. And then you layer on the emerging managers who are going to be, you know, in some cases, you know, $500 million funds, in some cases, uh, you know, we're an investor in a $60 million fund, uh, and everything kind of in between. And you have a little less volatility with the Andreessen's and the founders and the light speeds of the world at their size, with their coverage, with their expertise, they're not going to lose money. They're going to generate, you know, two, three, four, something that's very solid. Uh, and then you can layer on these emerging managers or what we call established a little bit more under the radar managers and define that as more under the radar for like our client base, who's not intimately familiar with venture. Um, Oren would be an example of that, but everyone in venture knows Oren uh, or Ray Tonsing, a caffeinated capital. You know, there's a number of examples there. and so. That type of portfolio construction, we believe, can create this really uh, strong risk return profile where you've got a little bit more vol, uh, but increased potential for that you know, 10x, 20x, whatever x fund on the one side, buttressed with the more established managers who are a little bit bigger and are going to generate more stable uh, returns. Right now, startups have to do more with less. We all know that it's rough out there, folks. So if you need great tech talent, but you don't have the time to interview dozens and dozens of candidates, you need to check out Lemon.io. Lemon.io has thousands of on-demand developers to choose from. And these devs are vetted, experience, result-oriented, and they charge competitive rates. Great developers can be incredibly hard to find. And when you do find them, it can be hard to integrate them into your team. Lemon.io handles all of that for you. Startups choose Lemon.io because they only offer hand-picked developers with three or more years years of experience and strong portfolios. In fact, only 1% of candidates who apply get in. And if something ever goes wrong, Lemon.io will get you a replacement ASAP. You know what? A bunch of our launch founders have worked with Lemon.io and they've had great experiences, which is always good to hear. Go to Lemon.io slash twist and find your perfect developer. 
or tech team in 48 hours or less. Go to lemon.io slash twist and find your perfect developer or even a tech team in 48 hours or less. And twist listeners get 15% off their first four weeks. What a deal. Stop burning money, hire developers smarter, visit lemon.io slash twist. So tell me, how do you evaluate emerging managers, emerging managers? And how do you define emerging managers? So sure. maybe for the audience, we could start with how do you define what an emerging manager is? And then since it's emerging, you don't have 20 year track records, you don't have 10 funds to look at, how do you determine where to place a bet? Yeah, so uh, it's definitely tricky. And the way to start with uh, the definition here, and it's changes a little bit, uh, you know, we've again, bifurcated into kind of established established but under the radar and then emerging and we view emerging managers as you're on fund one two three maybe four kind of depends your size and your network and your brand um for us we have generally been looking for groups that have uh spun out of institutional players and so i mentioned you know west chan at fpv who spun out of felicis before that google ventures before that google uh it does give us a track record and attribution can be a tricky thing uh but we can get comfortable that, okay, this is someone who's been doing this for a long time and we think can continue to generate these types of returns. Uh, you know, Tomas Tungus from Pulp Theory spun out of Redpoint. We're an investor in his in his new fund. Uh, same type of idea, right? We can get comfortable. These so are not that's people easy. who... They had a track record. They were at a right. great firm. Y- you can kind of look back into what they had their fingerprints yeah. on. And then there's folks who... And I have a little bit of that to a certain extent because I had Sequoia, uh, Scouts yeah. portfolio that people could look at. So what do you do for somebody who's, hey, I'm just, this is my first fund. This is my second fund. Just get to know them and we'll talk to you on your third fund. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. So I think, you know, we think about answering a few basic questions, right? So is this individual or or fund? And usually it's individual. I feel like ventures become very individualized in terms of uh, there's been a movement that I've observed. I'm curious if you agree with this, where people... Uh, founders are are often interested in working with specific investors, right? Within yes. brands or otherwise, versus like I just want you know Fund X, Sequoia, uh, whatever. Yeah, you right. want Alfred Lin at Sequoia. Right. You want Stephanie. You want Ruloff right. on your board. Yes, that is the exactly. thing. Yes, people yeah. start to identify the the individual and their traits and their reputation and their network. Yeah. So that first question is okay. Are you someone that's going to see the best opportunities and the best ideas, right? Are you getting that kind of coverage? And then the second layer is, can you win investments into those businesses? Because that is equally important. You could have like the most crazy CRM system in the world and you could get in front of every great founder before they even launch. But if that founder doesn't want your capital, then it doesn't really matter, right? So are you actually able to get into these really eye-popping opportunities? And then how do you demonstrate that? And that third piece is the most difficult. So the way that we will go about underwriting for a new fund manager who we don't really have full track record for is, you know, we certainly aren't going to invest in someone if they've never made an angel investment or an early stage investment. Like that's that's kind of a non-starter. But we think network is probably the most powerful thing in venture capital. And, and at the core of that is trust. And so we will go talk to, and we'll do this really for any fund we talk to, but it's uh, weighted higher, if you will, for for these types of managers. Other GPs will go ask Andreessen Horowitz or Founders Fund or any of the groups I've mentioned, right? Hopefully someone who shares a board with this uh, individual and say, hey, what's your view of them? How's it been working with them? Are they really sharp? Uh, does the founder respect them, et cetera? We will go to the LP community, talk to other you know, institutional investors or family offices who have broken through and say, hey, 
you know, what are your views on this LP? You're an investor. What made you get excited about this? And then arguably one of the most critical pieces is we'll talk to founders and we'll say, okay, tell us in a demonstrable way, like what has so-and-so done in their relationship with you starting from the beginning? How did they find you? Why did you pick them? And what have they done since? And then you're really looking for the core question, which is if you've got a founder friend, would you recommend them? And would you recommend them over one of the other folks that you've mentioned and that we've talked about, right? And if we can't get comfortable that GPs think this person is rock solid, I would bring them into any deal that I have and be happy about it. LPs are able to say, okay, you know, we've, because we could do 10 references and another LP, LPs can do another 10, another 10, and you start to, you know, benefit from that scale. Um, and then the founders, right? If we can get comfortable across all three of those lenses, and it makes sense from a portfolio construction perspective, because we're looking at stage, we're looking at size, we're looking at sector, uh, then great. That's, that's how we would get comfortable. But it's, it's not as straightforward as, you know, looking at one of these great firms that's been doing it for a while. Yeah, it's, um, I'm in 20 funds that are not my own, 24, including my own. And yeah, I, I am almost exactly parallel to yours. Do they have some unique deal flow, right? And then can they compete for a deal? Now, I tend to do seed stage deals, seed stage funds, and I do pre-seed and seed. The, the great thing about that is by the time people get to Series A, there's between 30 and 50 names. So the, the competition is not yeah. as dogged as people perceive it to be because they're used to Series A and Series B competition. Most LPs don't understand at the seed stage because there's no you know, evidence here or th the evidence is not as clear as a Series A or Series B investment. You don't have one person backing up the truck. You have people going, huh, I would like to put 250 or 500K into this one million dollar round and they're like the founder's like just do take the whole million and they're like yeah maybe i pass the hat here and spread the risk a little bit um and then i'll put more money into the next round so it's it is definitely competing for deals and then i think this doubling down strategy your decision making strategy is super important and some people have great decision making some people don't um and i think you know your doubling down strategy is critical as we talked about or earlier and that's the one i yeah. am obsessed with right now Yes. Uh, because we do pre-seed and seed, we just get people to send us monthly reports, quarterly reports, roll them up, and then we have some secret sauce. Some of it should be obvious, <laughs> like revenue, or, you know, what's the level of the investor who's interested in the next round, and which investors are inbound to them, or which ones respond to our introductions. You know, if Sequoia and Kraft and, you know, whoever, Benchmark, uh, are really interested in meeting with the firm, man, that's pretty good for us. Like, yeah, maybe we need to, if a top tier fund is going to give them a term sheet at Series A, maybe we need to take that option and put another 500k in. So I, I have really gotten obsessed. I have a framework now, I guess I could share it, if you're interested. Uh, yeah. Is, um, I, well, I like to vet them. And I like doing it publicly, because I don't feel I'm in competition with anybody. We, we have the second largest amount of inbound of any firm, you know, it's like YC and then us 45,000 applications, and we get 20. So with all these applications coming in, like, we don't really feel like if we lose a deal, it's our fault, not that we didn't get to the company, you know. Um, so I've now defined likely winner and definitive winner coming out of the seed stage. So these are my criteria. Likely winner, definitive winner. Now that doesn't mean definitive DPI, IPO, parade, you know, pop the champagne, but coming out of seed to series A. Likely, they tend to have a party round going on. 
and there's, you know, two or three leads. So multiple leads putting in money. When it's a definitive winner, it's usually a known VC firm. Okay, so you can compare those co lead multiple co leads, one person, a, a convertible note in the likely winners, a price round in the winners, definitive winners. Mm. So just the legal instrument, because somebody's putting in 3 million, 5 million, whatever they're doing in the definitive winners, they're just like, I want to price these shares. And because there's three people leading this one and a couple of angels or whatever doing their pro rata, they just do a convertible note. Okay, so you got two criteria there. And then on the on the third criteria, um, governance. In the first mm. one, the likely winners, there may not be a governance change, they may not have started the board meetings, nobody wants to take the board seat. Then when you get to the definitive winners, somebody specifically wants a board seat. So that's how I've now parsed the world. And when I see a likely winner, I tell my team, wh which bucket does this feel like more and they, they tend to have the same growth could be two or three, four X growth year over year. They had 100k in year one, year two, they have 500k, where they went from 200 to 600. But it's that um, it's how seriously, you know, the round is the next round is coming together. And is the organization becoming properly governed, you know, with the right investors? Now, it's not perfect, but it definitely signals it. And they just say, tell me if it's a likely or a definitive. And it's so rare that you see the definitive set as I've outlined it, it's rare. But you do see a lot more, I would say it's 10 to one, we'll mm -hmm. see a note come together for 3 million bucks. And then the definitive, you know, 5 million bucks comes down from craft or whoever gets greedy and wants the whole round and they want to be on the board and they want to, you know, and I, I use greed as like, the good type of greed. Yeah, like, I want to see this succeed, you know, the passion come in. I don't know. What do you think of that? I like it. I, I think it makes sense. The one, change? yeah. If anything, yeah. I mean, so yeah, I'm, no, I, this I is mean, a working theory. I'm still yeah. working on it. I'm about seventy percent of the way there with this theory. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. No, I, I no. think uh, well, there's a few things. One thing that's interesting is you'll hear a lot from VCs that in order to make the highest returns, you need to be contrarian, and so interesting within that context of, and I think it fits well, actually, if you have one strong lead, and you don't have others at the table who are trying to co invest, you kind of mm. could have that contrarian view. Yes. Right? So that's really interesting. I think that fits well and, and makes a ton of sense. I think the one piece, you know, there's some firms out there, Goodwater, for example, or an investor in Goodwater, I think they're really, really smart. Um, they are more data driven. And one of the things that they are trying to identify is other than the obvious, right, that sort of Stanford uh, computer science graduate who has already built a billion dollar company and is starting his next one or her next one, how do you figure out the opportunities that other people will miss? Uh, and so actually, I think that fits into your framework well, too. Uh, hmm. But the interesting question is, I don't know that the, the founders, funds, the Andreessen's, those folks of the world, maybe they do. Uh, are willing to take as big of a risk on someone like that who may create a different category and maybe, you know, a, a dentist who may be, uh, you know, someone who doesn't fit the traditional bill. Um, I'm Makes talking sense. myself into a circle here back to actually thinking if you've got one lead, that's actually a huge, uh, a, gr a good positive signal. Yeah, it's conviction, right? So it could be contrarian. I was thinking conviction, but I like your punch up there that it, it's conviction and also contrarian. Like it's not like, there's yeah. four people, five people, everybody's 
group thinking, okay, this is some AI startup. Yeah, we all got to put 500k into it. Everybody talks themselves into it. Everybody's taking a little bit of risk, not a lot of risk. So it's like when you have whatever size fund, you know, the 500k check, you can get a little frisky. But the $5 million check, got to think it through. Yeah. People are going to notice uh, that bet. 100%. How, how do you think yeah. about, uh, you know, that's kind of pure signal from who's investing? Uh, the other side of the coin might be, you know, say product market fit, right? And so yeah. uh, one of the interesting concepts I've heard from uh, one of our, our fund managers is, you know, I'm really looking, I get excited when I see extreme product market fit, right? Huge growth with no marketing. Uh, and so, yeah, so there's I wonder, a term for that. Yeah, it's market pull is what Andy Ratcliffe from one of the benchmark founders called yep. has called it. And um, market pull is you know, it when you see it, it's like the stuff is flying off the shelves faster you than you can do it. And your issues become customer support. You know, your issues become customer success, salespeople, just yeah, you know, the number of requests coming in servers, it just the, the whole nature of the startup changes, like the problem set moves from, you know, okay, let's come up with a great hamburger, and a great, you know, way to present it to, oh, my God, we're out of napkins, you know, like, mm -hmm. there's just too many, there's too many yeah. people online, we're going to run out of iced tea. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. If you thought about it, like a hamburger stand, it's kind of like, what are Shake Shack's problem? Shake Shack's problem is the line's too long. You know, when you right. go to Madison Park, it's like that line's too damn long. Okay, let's put a camera up so people can see when the line's shorter and they can time it or, you know, whatever. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll tweet out when the line goes under 30 minutes or something. That's a different problem. So we do look at that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the seed stage, you have to, you have to start talking to customers. That was the thing I found very disturbing in the ZERP environment that last three or four years to see people not want to join the board and own a higher percentage than we did. So we might own when we own over 5%, we want to be a board observer or have a board seat. We think that's reasonable. Yeah. Um, and we really don't care if it's an observer or a full board seat in most cases, because in my experience, I've never seen in a startup like the board vote be some dramatic television HBO movie where like, Oh, my God, mm. the future of this startup is based on that. It's very, very rare happened with uber it has not happened a, a second time in 400 uh, it, it almost happened with open ai right to a certain degree yeah so that the reason these are notable is because they're rare yeah um and really what you want to know when you're on the board is when's the next round when is the next round happening so you don't get left out of it and are they going to sell the company or not right and like just having that early signal like hey they're thinking of selling the company or are there secondaries occurring? Just like there are major fi financial transactions occurring. And if you're a VC firm who owns over 5%, you own 8%, 12%, 6%, whatever it is, that could be a very meaningful moment for you to expand your position, to clear some of your position, to take your pro rata to not. And if you know about it early, you can really make a more thoughtful decision. So that's always been very troublesome to me, people not calling customers and no, no governance. Those are my two huge red flags. And man, I saw that happen. It was one vertical where it happened more than others. It was crypto. Yeah, I was just thinking and that. I mean, this FTX in a nutshell. I, I mean, it was so weird to see these companies come in and I'd say, who's your customer? And they'd be like, you. And I'm like, no, no, I'm an investor. I say, yeah, yeah, no, we want you to invest in the token. I'm like, yeah, but what does the token <laughs> do? Oh, it, you know, it helps you render. Yeah. There was like a render coin. It's actually done pretty well. It helps render videos, whatever. I'm like, okay, it's a really novel concept in the world. I appreciate it on a technical basis, but who are the customers? I'm like, we'll find out. I'm like, but your value in the company at a billion dollars and we'll find out like 
how about we find out lean startup style, ask a customer, get them to use the product, and then see if they'll give us their credit card after the trial or take their credit card and say on day 31 it's going to get charged like there are some founders who do that you can use it for 30 mm -hmm. days but i need your credit card day 31 if you don't cancel by day 31 it's going to charge it and you can cancel after that but you know you're I'm at least going to get that one month out of you some founders are afraid to do that it's interesting it's i mean you can do there's this concept of you know painted door tests too right where like even before oh, you launch uh yeah. you know you could say okay we want to see if this is product that's going to resonate with the market and so we're going to create a website we're going to create basically like the oh, minimum yes. amount of stuff we need to do to yeah. have it be there and then let's see if we get pre-orders let's see if we get yeah. website visits so we can drive yes. traffic i and never heard it as the pre-order the painted door test is a really good painted door test uh, evocative yeah. name yeah, yeah. Uh, that was you know a lot of steve blank and eric reese you know started this lean startup movement over 10 years mm -hmm. ago and they the science of it and yeah, just put up a landing page with the name of your product, sign up for $49, ask people to put their credit card in and then say, yeah, we'll charge your card when the product comes out, we've put you on the mailing list, we're going to send you 30 days. And then they wouldn't even start it. But you at least see if people yeah. have any inclination. That was the thing I liked about Kickstarter. It's too bad hardware sucks as a category. Yeah. It's, um, tough. it's yeah. a lot harder. I mean, have, have we seen any hardware consumer hardware company have a great venture outcome in the last 10 years? Name your top three. I, I mean, it's it's tricky. Go because, from. yeah. Okay. Okay, vendor. Oh, I was I was going to just dodge your question there, but I'll think about it Drop for a second. Dropcam bought by Google for Nest, whatever that was. Dropcam became Nest, I guess. That was five hundred million. I mean, I, I I've been down this road so many times. It's really hard to find consumer hardware that works. Well, I think it goes to the exception proves the rule. Back to the earlier point. Um, it's tough. I mean, and it starts with, you know, margins to a certain degree, right? And growth to a certain degree. And then you got to sell for distribution. You got to sell for manufacturing. You got to sell for like so many more things. Defensibility. Um, yeah. Defensibility. Um, Tesla would be the one. Tesla would yeah. be the one. If you consider it like it, it is As a hardware the, product. Yeah. All it's of those have product. huge software components, right? So it's yeah. Um, yeah. maybe less a little bit GoPro, but, but even there. Yeah. All right, man. This has been amazing. You know, the one thing I wanted to talk to you about was just the de democratization of VC. You work with a lot of family offices. And uh, we actually did our raise 506 C. And I just published the deal memo at launch.co slash memo. And um, hundreds of people asked for an allocation. Now we have a limit on the number we can give to accredited investors and we can't accept non accredited. So we can really only accept qualified purchasers at scale. But we did get a lot of accredited investors and, and accept a lot of them with 50k, 250k checks, which was great. You see a lot of demand, you know, in the long tail or the medium tail uh, for this space. And, and how do you think about capturing that? I love that you're doing that. And as a personal note, like it's one, it's something I'm passionate about. I think that certain regulatory agencies make it way harder than not to invest in top tier venture firms by basically incentivizing structural changes such that they only take qualified purchasers or even accredited investors. Uh, and if you think about like, I could go buy, uh, name your coin, you know, tomorrow, but I can't invest yeah. in a top tier VC fund, it makes literally no sense. And so I hope that we see greater democrat democratization in the space. I think you're, you're leading the way and I uh, applaud you for it. Um, I think that there is trillions of dollars in, in value, right, that right now has no home in, in that market segment. And I think to the extent that they you know, educationally understand the power of venture capital. And to be fair, have the ability to allocate 
to a space that's not going to return capital for quite some time. Um, that is something that would be fantastic to see more of. So I do think it's, it's, I'd love to say it's inevitable. I don't know based on uh, the things that have to move in order to create more the SEC people doing has to it. really, you know, they yeah. have a mandate to create an accreditation test. And I really think that would be helpful. And yeah. I think taking the accreditation limit off, like accredited investors who pass a test should be able to invest in whatever they want. If you take a five hour test, or let's just say a test that takes five hours of studying, the test itself could take half an hour. But you know, like, imagine you had to sit through five hours of courseware on diversification, on interest, on private companies, how long they take to go public, how many yeah. fail. And you just showed people the statistics for venture capital and the IRR, private equity, real estate, and then you made them take a test that proved they understand, you know, the failure rate of these and, and what did the top quartile venture fund firms do and, and the average one do. And they just had a general idea of like the risk they were taking or, you know, a, a very concrete idea of the risk they were taking. You know, they, they don't do that in Vegas. They don't do it on, you know, I don't know, all this fantasy sports stuff people are betting on and people can gamble the heck out of the, take the lottery, ball. take a state lottery. I mean, it's unbelievable. And you look at how that disproportionately affects lower income people. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, okay, you're going to let them do that. I think the chance of winning the lottery and take the NBV of it, do whatever you want with it and compare it to like low, like bottom quartile venture. And it's not as good. That would be actually correct. Somebody make a chart of that. I'm going to, that's a really good blog post I should do. But like, if you took scratch off tickets and you took the bottom quartile of venture capital, better off putting it in venture capital. So maybe they should have scratch off tickets and you scratch it off and you get a certain amount to put into a venture. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it yeah. And it's hilarious. Which one? That'd be fantastic. I'm in. <laughs> Scratch it off. You got, oh, I got three sequoias. Oh, I need <laughs> one more sequoia to get in there. All right, Jordan, you've been a great guest. I'd uh, love to have you on again. And we'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups and the Angel Podcast and whatever this is. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jason.